open your word. I pray for grace and wisdom and discernment as we look at your truth. And I pray, Lord, you'd give us perspective. I thank you for the, the privilege of being together this morning and looking together at your truth and being shaped by it. And Lord, we pray that she be glorified. I pray that in my weakness, she would be my strength. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible, 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Uh, every time around this uh, season, I look at, I'm always curious at, about New Year's resolutions. I, I, I like the beginning of a new start. And I, and I think about my life and I think about and reflect on it in a way that I don't typically in uh, August. And uh, what are the most popular New Year resolutions? Well, you probably could figure out a bunch of them if you were like in your head right now going through them. Improve fitness. It's depressing looking in the mirror, isn't it? Um, improve fitness, improve finances, improve mental health. Lose weight, improve diet, make more time for loved ones, stop smoking, learn a new skill, make more time for hobbies, improve work-life balance, travel more, meditate regularly, drink less alcohol, perform better at work. But here's the problem. Unless the Holy Spirit gives us divine wisdom, we will seek to make changes in all the areas that are of less importance. We'll have no wisdom. What I've entitled this message this morning is a renewed way of thinking and living in a new year. A renewed way of thinking and living in a new year. And the question I want you to ask yourself as we get started this morning, are you thinking correctly about life as a Christian? Because if you're not careful, you're going to get involved in religious things, but you're going to live as if you're not a theist. You're going to live as if there's no God. You're going to live as if your life exists around your, your occupation, your hobbies, your weight, your fitness. Think about it. Wouldn't it be sad if you gave your whole life to nothing but fitness? What does it gain you in the end? A lot of steps. I'm not downplaying the importance of fitness, but I pray that we would see the value of spiritual godliness. This morning, let's look at 2 Peter chapter 3. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to look at four commands that the apostle gives at the end of the letter. Four commands. And as I was thinking about, okay, what would be a way to, biblically to challenge our thinking as to how God wants us to look at our life? And I thought it would be timely to do it as we start out here in January. How are we to live? What are we to focus on? What are we to live towards? What are the commands that the apostle would give the people of God in relationship to their life. That's what we're going to seek to do. And, and as we jump into 2 Peter 3, because we need a renewed way of thinking in order to do this, I want to read you a passage in Romans 12. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. If, if we're conformed to this world, we're pressed into a mold of thinking, and we will adopt to that which is temporal. And the most important things on my mind will be temporal goals and temporal values. So what do we need as the people of God as we go into this? We need God to renew our thought processes. And if the Holy Spirit renews our mind, we see life not from a temporal point of view, but from an eternal point of view. So I want to encourage you with that. Because in Christ Jesus, that's where we find our renewal, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's hope this morning. This is not a, a long-lost conclusion where we go, oh, woe is us. We only care about fitness and food. No, it's like we go, okay, God, we, we, we tend to think about money. We tend to think about fitness. We tend to think about hobbies. We tend to think about materialism. We tend to think about all of these things, and God, we desperately need you to rescue us. So will you take our minds, and as we look at your word, would you transform our value system, and would you transform our affections? And God, through his power and grace, enables people like you and me to live the Christian life. That's hopeful, isn't it? So this morning, let's look at it through that lens. Second Peter is, we've looked at this letter, and when we looked at it, we talked about how this is, uh, the first one is uh, talking about suffering, First Peter. Second Peter is talking about uh, the danger of false teaching within the church. False teachers in the church, uh, poison in the pew, as an old professor once told me. I always remember that. And, and Paul, Peter is writing, and, and he says in um, verse 14, he says, and I'm going to open up here, um, turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to review a little bit into the verses preceding this, but let's start in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of of our Lord is salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, Knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. As we get started here, the backdrop of everything that Peter says is the idea of as you wait, as you wait, I love this. It's the idea that I'm going to tell you how to live, but you're going to live this way as you are expectingly waiting. So the first thought is, is like, we got to pray that God would renew our hearts as it relates to 
are we living waiting on the return of Jesus Christ? If we're not looking and expecting, I remember uh, I went to a little, little school called Grace Academy. I, I changed schools my junior year and went to Macaulay in downtown Chattanooga. And uh, my mom had a longer drive to get me. And I wasn't driving quite yet. And um, I remember there were nights I'd get done with practice. We'd practice at 4 o'clock till about 6 o'clock. And I remember a lot of nights being out there at 7.05 in the dark down by Macaulay. But I was expectant. I knew Diana Barber was coming. It was before cell phones. And there wasn't a payphone in sight. I used to have the payphone thing down, Pat, to those that are older than 40, you remember the days where you called collect if you didn't have coins. And I would just be like, uh, the, the operator would be like, uh, uh, collect call from my mom, pick me up, pick me up, pick me up, and hang up, you know. And so I had that one down. But um, I would wait expectantly. I wasn't iffy. I knew she was coming. But I knew the traffic may dictate a later pickup time. I knew she was coming. I never sat there and go, no, I'm going to live out here tonight, all through the night. I knew she was coming, and I waited. And when I saw cars go by, I looked. I looked for her vehicle. I was waiting expectantly. I could be talking to a buddy on the street, and I could be talking to him, but in the back of my mind, I wonder where she's coming. I wonder when she's coming. I wonder when she's coming. The Christian life, if we lose sight of the coming of Christ, we are going to live powerless lives. You can't just live the Christian life in light of the first coming. You have to live it in light of both comings. You remember what we just saw in uh, Titus? Um, the grace of God has appeared to all men, bringing salvation. And then later in the text, he says, looking forward to the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You live remembering and looking and reflecting on the first appearing, but you live looking at the second appearing, and this is what Peter is doing. He's saying, look, th this is how you live. This is how you work and operate. Look at verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, he's speaking of the day of the Lord, the greatest day of vengeance the world will ever know. The greatest judgment. Remember when uh, he came into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world, John chapter 3? But there's a day, friend, and the day is drawing nigh when Jesus will come, not as Savior, but he'll come as judge. And it will be the greatest wrath unleashed against the world the world has ever known. You could be in this uh, place where you're thinking, you know, I'm young. I got time. I'll, I'll figure this out after I get out of college. I, I've got life to live. But I want to warn you, friend, there's a day of judgment that is coming. And when Jesus Christ returns, it will not be to bring salvation. It will be to bring his holy, righteous judgment upon this earth to gather his people. And so when we look at this, he's telling them, look, live with the expectation of the day of the Lord to come. But he gives believers hope because isn't it, isn't it exciting to know that Romans says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't live fearful. We live with a promised expectation because now we are friends of God through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're no longer approaching him with a sense of terror. We have a holy sense of fear, but it's now that we are adopted sons and daughters. It's a different climate. It's a different ballgame. 
But he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. And then he says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so Peter says those words, again, the day of the Lord, the day of God, the new heavens and a new earth that comes in the future in which righteousness dwells. And then he says this, he says, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, this is the backdrop, since you're living with the sense of expectation that God will fulfill his promises, that he'll come back, that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, then how are you to live? He gives four commands that we're going to look at this morning that I pray will shape the way that we look at the new year. And it will, if anything, be an opportunity to pray specifically as to how God desires that we live our lives. And each one of these one of the ways you can apply it is you can say, you can turn it into a prayer. God, would you give me guidance to approach my life this year this way? The first one that we're going to look at is live diligent. Live diligent. He says, be diligent to be found by him. Be diligent. It, it means uh, be earnest, be eager. Christ is going to return. Be diligent as to how you live your lives. He uses that word. I, I don't know about you, but my, my memory is not as good as it once was. And uh, I can go through and I have to be reminded, even after going through Second Peter, I spent a lot of time in it. But, but that word diligence really... Uh, a common word in the book. And remember at the beginning of the letter, for this very reason, make every effort, be diligent to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. And then he goes through all those lists of virtues. And remember verse 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. I mean, over and over, this word is used, and he speaks about it like this is to be the way that we're to live our life. And what does he say about the diligence that he wants them to live their life with? He says, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. The first area that he wants them to be diligent is in regards to their holiness, he says, without spot, without blemish, without spot. Um, this is a good way of seeing how this word, the meaning of it. First Timothy, Paul says, to keep the commandment unstained 
and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So he says, live unstained, be diligent to be free from spot, be diligent to walk holy. It's fascinating because if you went back and saw the first letter of Peter, and remember in chapter one, he talks a lot about holiness. And so these are, these are themes that are, uh, that are they're really significant and important to him. And he's saying, look, Christ is coming back. Be diligent to be holy. But then he says, be diligent to be at peace to be at peace. Spot is unstained, blemished. Before I go to peace, look at Philippians. Paul says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. I love that because it's really the same heartbeat of Peter. He's saying, in light of what God will do in the future, Regard your holiness. Look at your personal purity. Look at your life. Live pure, spotless, without blemish. And then he says, and at peace. And at peace. And, and here, what do you think he means? Uh, you know, peace in the scripture. We have peace with God. We're called to be at peace with others. But there's this reality in the New Testament that we could call the peace of God. And, and Colossians speaks about it. And go over to Colossians with me. In Colossians chapter 3, in Colossians chapter 3, in verse 15, notice what it says about peace. Paul says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. It's the... Uh, it's the idea of uh, let it be an umpire. I admire referees because, uh, wow. Jason can tell you, referees get hammered, don't they, Jason? They get hammered. Just get yelled at. Just, just people get mad at umpires. I used to umpire, and I wasn't even a baseball player, and, and that's probably part of the problem. But I used to get hammered. I mean hammered by grown men. I was 16. But, but here, this is not an earthly umpire. This is the idea that let the peace of Christ act as an umpire in your life. Live according to his peace. It goes right into verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You see, you may have experienced peace with God. And I said, are you a Christian? You'd say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I've trusted in Jesus. But then I could ask you another question. You may not be able to answer in the affirmative. I may say, hey, is the peace of Christ ruling in your heart in the way you're living your life right now? And you may say, unfortunately, right now it's not. You see, Peter wants them to be fully assured he wants them to live diligent lives in light of the end game, in light of eternity, in light of new heavens and a new earth. And he's saying, look, be diligent to be pure, be diligent to be found at peace. But then he goes on to the next command. The next command 
the way I looked at this one is live considering. Now, now you may be like, what, what in the world does that mean? Here's what he says in the text. He says, and count. That's the verb, the imperative, count. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Now, what in the world does that mean? The word count means to view, to regard, to esteem. You could say to consider. Consider, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Now, what, do you, what is he doing here? I, um, what appears to be happening is that he's restating what he just said in chapter 3, verse 9. And if you go back to chapter 3, verse 9, look at it with me again. Regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. Look at 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So if we take that in consideration as we try to uncover what in the world he means here, it seems to be the idea that as we live our lives diligently, we live considering that what we might look at as God's delay in his second coming is actually his patience. And if he's acting patiently towards people that have not come to the faith yet, how should that motivate our lives? I wonder if it makes you think about, wait a minute, if God's patience is regarded as salvation, how should I look at my life in holiness as I look at people around me that don't know Christ? How could I minister according to the grace of God as it relates evangelistically? How can I look at the people around me? You, you see, you go, wait a minute. The delay is not God being late. The delay is according to the mercy and the patience of God. And if he's being patient in his timetable as to when he returns, how should I participate in conjunction with his plan and with his mercy? It could be that because you've lost sight of the coming of Christ, that you have lost sight of anything to do with evangelism. It's scary, isn't it? Because sometimes we can get so comfortable with life that even the people that we probably would admit we don't think know the Lord, there's no evidence that Christ has changed their heart. We're completely okay with hanging out with them on a regular basis without sharing the good news of Christ. And, and I think here there's hope for people that can relate to that. I can relate to that. There's hope because the Holy Spirit renews our mind to what God has planned for us. And because he renews our mind and because he guards us against conforming to this world, God brings us in line with his purposes as we pray and as we get in scripture and he gives us a heartbeat and a burden for the people around us that don't know him. Consider the patience of the Lord as salvation. Who is around you that doesn't know Christ? Who are the people that 
have maybe been around the church but have never caught it, who may have prayed a prayer but have never shown any evidence. I've told you many times about being on the side of a road when I flipped my car in Macon, Georgia. And from the time I started flipping in the car, uh, a lady called the school and she said, uh, I want to talk to the student at Bruton Parker College that was in the wreck. And the lady that answered the phone knew me. And she says, all right, she, and my room rang. And I answered the phone and she says, you don't know me, but I was on the interstate and your car flipped past me. And she says, you flipped at least five times. And I remember when I flipped, the last thing I remember, I, th I remember one time seeing like glass, like I could just vision like going upside down and seeing glass and pavement. And the next thing I remember, I'm laying on the side of the road with people around me. I don't remember anything in between. Well, they were checking my vitals. They, and I was laying on, my head was on some books I had in my car and they were, they were talking and I remember them saying, I, his, his eyes are open and they were checking my pulse. Now here's the question. Are there spiritual vital signs in your life? Are, are there vitals that point to the reality of Christ? And, 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 and when we have, we have people around us that while they may profess the things of God, there's nothing in their life that illustrates that the seed of the Holy Spirit abides in them. And so we see this and Peter says, look, consider the patience of the Lord of salvation. Other people think that he's also challenging them. He's saying, look, it's God's patience, and while you're still alive, and while he's not yet returned, consider the opportunity to make your calling and election sure. Remember what he said in chapter 1? Like, I tell you, if, if, if by God's grace we get a vision for what God will do in the future, we will see how God longs for us to live fully assured that we are his. And you may be here today thinking, how can I experience that kind of assurance? Well, according to Peter, it happens as we abide in the word of God and as we walk in dependent obedience upon Christ. And as we walk according to what the word calls us to be, his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God and we walk in a joyful assurance. And so he says, look, consider, understand, look at the reason, understand the backdrop, consider the meaning of life and what is taking place. Be diligent. Live considering. And, and then he gets into the third one here. Live established. Live established. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand. But before we get into verse 17, we have to see what he says about Paul. You see, Paul spoke about the salvation and the patience of God. Also, Peter mentions it, but then he alludes to the fact that Paul speaks about it. And, and, and Paul speaks about it, and, and, and what did he do? In Romans chapter 2, what does it say? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, as, as we live lives of holiness without spot or blemish, living in the peace of Christ, 
we are enabled to see God's patience with sinners. We begin to have eyes for the lost. And, and then he says, just as our beloved Paul wrote to you. He mentions that, and so we could look at what he speaks about, because Paul speaks about the salvation of God and the patience of God in Romans 2, verse 4. Isn't it interesting that, that Paul spoke about it in regards to his own story? In, in 1 Timothy 1, remember when he says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So, so, so he uses Paul as an example, and, but then he says something about that. He says that Paul not only spoke about the patience of God, but he wrote words that often were difficult to understand. Now, that, that's a big exhale for me because sometimes I don't understand what Paul's saying. Anybody relate? But, but the question is this, when we approach the word of God and we're confused about maybe what exactly Paul is saying through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, how do we approach it? Do we approach it with humility? Do we approach it with God? Would you give me wisdom to understand how your word interprets scripture? What are you saying? Some people, when they face difficult scripture, rather than go to it with humility, it, it demonstrates the pride in their hearts. And rather than a humble, meek response to God's word in what's difficult, they twist and they pervert what God's word has said. And this is going to set him up for his third command. You see, you see what he's doing here? He's saying, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. And then he changes. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And he uses that transition to lead to the next command. So, so go back with me. What's the first command? The first command, live diligent. The second command, live considering. The third command, live established. And what do you think he's saying live established because? He's saying live established because there are people who are ignorant and unstable. And if you are not firmly planted where you stand, you will be led astray by the very people who twist and pervert the words of Paul. I tell you, how are you going to uh, make it, young people? You live in a day when one of the most popular words in Christianity is deconstruction people deconstructing from the faith. Well, there's nothing new under the sun. People were deconstructing when Peter wrote this. And you know how they deconstructed? 
they deconstructed because when they faced difficult scripture that their human mind could not comprehend, rather than bowing before Christ, they, in their ignorance and in their instability, twisted and perverted the scripture and led other people to the same conclusion. And here's the thing. If you're going to navigate in 2024 and walk with God, you're going to have to live with the mindset of the future according to what God says. You're going to have to live waiting, live expecting, live according to the promised plan of God. But as you do that, you're going to have to be diligent. You're going to have to consider what the scripture teaches you about the delay of the Lord as it relates to salvation and his patience. And you're going to have to understand that God calls you through his word to be established. Don't be led away by people who would distort and cause error to the scripture. Pervert the scripture. I pray this encourages you. There's hope for the people of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Live established. Don't be carried away. Ignorant and unstable people twist the word of God. I tell you, you could look at Jude 3. You could look at other passages. It's over and over in the Bible. This warning, carried away, means to lead off, carry away with someone. Remember that passage in Galatians? And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas was led astray. Led astray. That's the idea. You're, you're led astray. He, he wants them to see here that don't be carried away. And then he wants them to understand don't lose your own stability. Don't lose your stability. You remember that passage in Hebrews that reminds me of this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care, brothers. And, and so what does he do? He says, look, I want you to stand firm. I want you to keep your footing. I, lo I love this. And I, I told you this when we were studying 2 Peter. And uh, I went to Romania and taught 2 Peter, and it opened my eyes to so many things I felt like I didn't really see. And, and then even going back in this one and studying it again, but, but do you remember what Jesus told Peter? He says, Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, this is awesome. The word strengthen is the word established. What he's doing in 2 Peter is actually a part of the fulfillment of what Jesus promised that he would do. And what is he saying? He's saying, look, I understand what it means to be led away. He went through those denials of Christ. And now Peter had a passion and a heartbeat for the believers in Christ that they would stand firm. And he uses this phrase all through the letter. Remember in 2 Peter chapter 1, therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established, established in the truth that you have. Speaking of false teachers in chapter 2, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. Same word. It's the idea that they're not established. They're unsteady. But here he says, look, you, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away 
with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability. As you seek Christ, as you're diligent about the faith, as you look to Christ, as you look, live by his grace, God enables you to stay settled. Not only live diligent, not only live considering, not only live established, live growing. He says in verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. He says, look, grow, grow, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. God's the one who grows us. You can see that in uh, Corinthians when Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. But there's this unique responsibility. Um, remember when Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And, and now by the grace of God, we are called to grow. And, and he says, grow in the grace and the knowledge. What are we told about grace in the scripture? The first thing, I mean, there's several, but one of them is don't receive it in vain. Remember, he says, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Don't receive it in vain. Another thing that Paul says, don't nullify grace. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Another place that he uses it, he says, be strengthened by grace. 2 Timothy 2, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then Peter says, set your hope fully on grace. First Peter 1.13, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and yet another command as it relates to grace, Peter says, stand firm in grace. If you're writing these down, the first one, don't receive it in vain. The second one, don't nullify it. Number three, be strengthened by it. Number four, set your hope fully on it. And number five, stand firm in it. My Sylvanius, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And now Peter says, we are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of God. Grow in the grace and knowledge of God. Peter had something to say about growing, and it relates to knowledge. In 1 Peter 2, he says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. And, and you remember at the, at the end of uh, chapter 1, he, he's speaking about, you remember, 2 Peter 1, he says, we did not follow. Go back to verse 16 of 2 Peter 1. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And then he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. And here it is, to which you will do well to pay attention 
as to a lamp shining in a dark place. How are we going to navigate a turbulent society? I, uh, years ago, I was on a flight from uh, Huntsville to Denver. I was speaking at a youth camp in Phoenix. And uh, I, a lot of y'all have flown more than me, but I've flown a lot. I've never been on a flight like this. I, I, uh, in the middle of the flight, it was just as calm as could be. And then all of a sudden, it was as if they had hired a million kids to throw rocks at the plane. And I'm talking, it was getting pelted like I have never heard in my life. The plane was just getting abused by hail. It's a hailstorm. And at first, it wasn't, it was just awkward because it would just been clear. Well, then we started doing these crazy dips. And uh, I took my seatbelt and I went, Whoa! and And about that time, drinks were flying over the seats. And then it got a little bit hairy because this one person yells out, we're going to die. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man. And, but the problem was we started believing that he was right. And for about three minutes, I, I literally thought, okay, well, I didn't think I was going to go down on a plane, but this, I was praying. I was thinking about, okay, well, how do I process this? It was wild. And all of a sudden, we came out of it. And when we came out of it, it was like, what just happened? Well, we come back into like clear sky and everyone's looking at each other white. And, and while we were on the uh, turbulent part, the lady in the back was amazing. The flight attendant started screaming. She goes, calm down. She goes, everybody calm down right now. And we listened. She calmed us down. Well, we land, and, and then I'm like feeling like, man, I'm the king of overreaction. I thought I was going to die. My, the guy next to me thought I was going to die, and I felt a little dumb. I got off the flight. I called Ann, told her about it. She had screaming kids around her at the time. I, I think she was like, hey, it's turbulent here too. <laughs> and so, so I, I leave, and I feel a little bit like, you know, I'm embarrassed a little bit, like overreacted. I talked to some other passengers, and they were really scared. Well, it all came back around full circle. I get done with the camp, and I'm boarding a flight. I go from Phoenix to Denver, and when I get to Denver, I get on the flight to fly back to Huntsville. And when I get on the flight, lo and behold, guess who I see? The flight attendant. And I see her, and I catch eyes with her, and I said, you were on the flight with me the other day. And immediately, she goes, oh, my goodness, and she ran to the cockpit. And she looked at the pilot and she pointed at me and she said, he was on the flight. He was on the flight. He was on the flight. And I said, come here. And I said, be honest with me. I said, do you think, did you think we were crashing? And she said, absolutely. <laughs> and she goes, we got into a hailstorm that the pilot was not expecting. And it was very dangerous. And so I feel like sometimes if, 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 if you look at the world, 
it's almost like 2000, ever since 2020, we're in a hailstorm. And it's like, woo, 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 and different people process it different ways. But I want to tell you something. How do you live in turbulent times? You're either going to run to news. You're going to run to voices. There's a lot of voices out there, isn't there? But God's word is sure. And it takes people back in the days of Nero. It takes people in great situations of oppression and suffering. And it always gives them an anchor. And it always gives them the ability to navigate safely and peacefully. And when we look at God's word here, it's all the same. It, it's the same. It says, look, get your eyes on the prize. And, and I love this. Look how he ends it. And then we're done. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pay attention to the word as a lamp shining in a dark place. Focus on it with all your heart. Run to it. Allow the word to renew you. And as the word renews you, it gives you perspective for life. And then he says in the last sentence of verse 18, to him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So the way I wrap this up, here's what he's doing. As you wait, live diligent, live considering, live established, live growing all to the glory of God. So as we jump into this new year, I want to encourage you. We need the word of God on a regular basis in our hearts. How many of you can relate to me when your heart is unsettled, fearful, anxious, frustrated, angry, and you pray and you say, oh God, I need to be redirected. And you get in God's word and it's like you can breathe again. And the Holy Spirit takes his truth and renews your mind and gives you perspective as you not only focus on the glories of Christ, but you focus on our insufficiencies, but you're reminded of his rescuing grace. We need it desperately. I pray that as a church, as we, as we focus on the word of God, that we wouldn't see Sunday morning as the only time we focus on the word of God, but we would see that we need to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. And the means through which that God has desired that we grow up into him is through his implanted word that we would grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. And as we learn the word, as the word renews us, God is inviting us to depend on that very word, to live by it. So friend, as we jump into this year, I pray that we would all be biblical counselors to one another. And when we hear that we've lost our navigation system, we'd be reminded in a Christian community of how God desires us to live, not only this year, but to live our Christian lives. Would you bow your head? Father, I thank you for your perfect truth. God, I think about living diligent, living this 
reflective way of considering your plan and purpose and patience and living not being led astray and living growing and oh God, I, I, I think I can say it for all of us. We desperately need your grace. We thank you though, Father, that you have not left us as orphans. But because and through your cross, by grace through faith, we've experienced adoption as sons and daughters. I thank you that you care about us so much that you call us to a better way. And I pray we'd humble ourselves even now as I pray. I pray we'd humble ourselves and I pray corporately right now, we would say, oh God, please direct my path. Oh God, please lead me to your word. Oh God, help me in my weakness. Oh God, I need you. We need you. I pray that we would live with the perspective of Christians. We ask that you be glorified through this passage as it works its way in our life. And I pray, oh God, if there's someone here today, even as they contemplate your coming judgment, even as they contemplate what these verses mean, I pray today would be the day of salvation for them if they've never trusted in the work of your son, the perfect life of obedience and the perfect sacrifice that he offered up on the cross. And I pray they would see that apart from Jesus, they will never have their sins forgiven. But I pray today by grace through faith, they would trust in what he accomplished and be saved. It's in Jesus' name we pray.